Well, anyhow, in, in Luke's gospel today, in the story today, this, there's this historic event uh, of how uh, seeing Jesus for who he truly is leads to this uh, encounter of grace and an encounter that completely restores uh, someone from the suffering and from the disorders uh, that sin in general, the sin in the world has affected in this man's life and, and has caused, you know, these, these physical ailments, social alienation, uh, spiritual distance from God. It's a picture of how seeing Jesus makes us well, as the ESV translates it, which if we're not careful, we could read that as just a little mild understatement rather than the picture of complete salvation uh, that comes into this person's life when they actually see Jesus for who he, for who he truly is. Well, this is the fourth and the final healing that Jesus has on this journey narrative towards Jerusalem. We've been in it since chapter 9 and there's been these four uh, healing miracles, one in chapter 13, one in 14, another in 17 and now this one here. And this one's chosen uh, in this moment because of its extraordinary uh, depiction of all that Jesus is and all that he came to do. Like it's just this picture of his ministry. And when we combine this story with next week's story, when we look at Zacchaeus, we get a full picture of the nature and the effect uh, of saving faith and salvation as the kingdom of God breaks into people's lives and into this world as they, as they encounter that in Jesus. This blind man is a great visual, uh, a living parable, if you like, of how the kingdom of God, God takes effect and takes hold in people in people's lives now, uh, in this age, before Jesus comes back, hopefully not before Carlton win their 17th premiership, but right now, uh, you, can, you can enjoy that little comment, um, and to make all things well. A graphic picture of um, the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, how it's not those who are out at the front of society, those who are position themselves in the best vantage points uh, due to their privilege, due to their power. It's not those who actually understand and see how it is that the kingdom of God uh, is received through Jesus. Indeed, what we've seen is that these things can, not always, but can blind us, can keep us from uh, perceiving and seeing Jesus for who he is. We saw that in the rich young ruler, he couldn't, he couldn't see the value of Jesus past the value of his wealth. Power and privilege and being at the front of society tends to cultivate a resistance to the gospel of grace. While, while being one of society's expendables tends to cultivate uh, the humility needed to receive grace. And so here in this passage, we read that as he, as Jesus, uh, drew near to Jericho. So we're on this travel narrative and we're, we're getting near to Jericho now. There's a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging and hearing a crowd going by. He inquired what it meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And then he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Well, the stage is set for this miraculous moment. 
And it's set with reference to three main characters. There's the blind man, there's the crowd, and then there's Jesus of Nazareth, who now far from his hometown is described in terms of his geographical origin by the crowd, but by messianic Davidic mercy by this blind man. Luke describes the presence of this blind man in the status that his uh, contemporary society uh, affords such a person. He's a beggar. Joel Green in his commentary points out that this would place this blind man uh, in the 5 to 10% of the population known as the expendables, for whom society uh, as a whole, as a collection, just have no need of these people. For people like this blind man in Jesus' day, they are forced to live off the charity of others on the margins of society, having no possessions of their own, no homes to go to, no, no families to go at home to at night to embrace them. In fact, his presence in any family, in any space, would be a bit of a social stigma, a cause of religious shame or at least suspicion. Rather ironically, though, if not for the premium uh, and religious duty of almsgiving in, in Jewish culture and Jewish circles, this man's life, like those around him, would be very, very short-lived. Or marginalised. Well, he finds himself marginalised by religious culture. He also finds himself sustained by scriptural care for the poor. And this blind beggar is manifestly a picture of poor in the context of Luke's gospel. And for those of us that are familiar with Jesus' mission statement, way back in Luke 4, uh, 18, 19, he's one of the poor that Jesus has come to serve. And those that are, we remember when he had to give evidence to John the Baptist about what's going on in the mission of Jesus in, in Luke 7. This event of the making well of a blind man is the literal fulfillment of Jesus' self-proclaimed role as the anointed Messiah to bring good news to the poor and to bring sight and, and, and to the blind and healing to those. This is a literally a proclamation of that mission. And it's also about as clear a statement as Jesus can make about how his divinity uh, is exercised to bring effect the saving grace of the kingdom of God. Like a lot of people say, ah, you never hear Jesus claim to be God. He never comes right out to say, yes, I am God. Au contraire. You cannot get a more uh, indisputable claim to equality with God in being an operational purpose than what we see Jesus doing here. And so the stage is set. And there is this sense of urgency now as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. Everything about the picture of this moment uh, is movement, is activity. As the crowds gather and rush and jostle to see Jesus as he passes by. Surely now, uh, Jesus is just like 20 k's from Jerusalem, just a day's walk. He's going to get there. Like we've been on this journey now for a year and a half. Surely he's not going to get distracted or get delayed. He's getting to Jerusalem. But sitting by the roadside is our blind man. The road from Jericho to Jerusalem is a very uh, high traffic road, often taken by 
uh, religiously oriented travelers uh, and tradesmen and traders as well, heading to the temple for religious festivals and things like that. It's the same road that Jesus depicted the, uh, the Good Samaritan on. However, this is not a fictitious event. This is a real occasion. So this beggar that is in this story is not some foil to make a point. Rather, he's actually an eyesore. The sort of object that gets pushed further out of sight when dignitaries and celebrities uh, visit you know, this area. It's kind of like when, I don't know if you can remember this you know, real caring, compassionate moment by the New South Wales government and the Sydney City Council when they rid the CBD in Sydney of all the homeless people so when the cameras came in for the Sydney Olympics it wouldn't be, you know, look too offensive and too all messed up. Our beggar friend is not kind of sitting on the curb of the road. His, his roadside vantage point has given way to far more important people, far more uh, acceptable types. And now this beggar, he actually finds himself a, a fair distance back from the road. He's kind of been conveniently hidden away, probably tucked behind a rock or, or something. But while being blind robs you of your visual appreciation of the world, it heightens things like taste and it heightens things like smell and hearing. And our friend can hear that his recent removal is due to large crowds kind of needing his real estate so that, so that they can take in some kind of thing that's going on. There's some kind of event. And so he inquires, what's, what's all the noise about? This is not a usual day at the office. And he learns that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by and he's heading to Jerusalem. Well, the blind man's reaction to this news, that Jesus is passing by, is reminiscent of the lepers back in, in 17, chapter 17. This is not just some spectacle to, to, to take in, to, to kind of like post on your socials or something or other, you know, like click, you know, hashtag, just saw Jesus walking by. Now I'm off to Simeon Smoothies to get a frappe or something or other. This is an opportunity not to be missed. This is an opportunity to, to test the rumours, perhaps, to see if all that has been said about Jesus is actually true. Something that every one of us should be about doing. Should be about testing whether the things that we've heard about Jesus is true. And he wants to find that out. When you live in the margins, as this man does... News of someone who makes a habit uh, <clears throat> of bringing restoration to people like him doesn't just get lost in the wash with the, the rest of the issues and news of the day. It gets examined. It gets discussed. It gets verified. It gets fact-checked and reasoned. Stories about Jesus, stories about Jesus on this road, float along this road, like the healing of the woman, the woman who'd been had a... a, a disabling spirit for 18 years and Jesus has healed her the man in the synagogue with the hand with dropsy along this road and Jesus has healed him the healing of the lepers floats along one of the reasons why Jesus tells the lepers to go and see the priests in the temple is to get authorization to have this fact checked did somebody really just cure leprosy that's why a lot of the, 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 the healings take place on the Sabbath in front of the synagogue, in front of genuine, reliable witnesses. 
paralytics are healed, physical ailments in front of officials, authentication fact checkers. And it blows down the bush telegraph of hope on the back channels of the poor. The stories of Jesus fill these communities on the roadsides with hope. Is it true? If 10 people are sitting around a table and someone mentions an article, they read about a cure for migraines or something or other, most of us will just go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's great, isn't it? But the person who has migraines, they're fact-checking. They want to know whether it's true, whether it can, whether it can be applied to their lives. People with need take claims of being made well very seriously. Our beggar has needs. And with all that he knows about Jesus and all that he's heard and with all that he has verified and scrutinized in the light of Scripture, he now seeks to have his needs met. And he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Knowing all that he knows about Jesus, he identifies him in a very specific way, the son of David. This is the first application in Luke's gospel of this title to Jesus. And it might, I think it's the only one. It's a description that was used, though, at the start of this gospel in correlation with the title son of God. It was as, as the angel and that talked to Mary about who Jesus was, he used the title son of David, the description of that in correlation in, in, in the same sense of son of God as Jesus was being described. It's a title familiar to all Jews and it carries messianic weight. Longing, awaited promises of this Davidic descendant who would be a king of unparalleled promise and power and he would reestablish David's throne and he would deliver Israel from their enemies and reign forever as Israel's royal king. He was to be a saviour sent by God uh, to save his people, a Messiah. That's where we get this word Messiah from. And our blind man, in all that he knows about Jesus, sees these promises in him. He sees Jesus in a way that very few people have come to see him. While everybody else sees a miracle worker, a preacher, a prophet, our blind man sees a saviour. A remaker of people. And his first impulse is not alms, not gifts, it's not sight, it's mercy. Mercy is this man's deepest need. The deepest need of this man's soul is mercy. And cry for mercy is an acknowledgement for something more serious than money or sight, a cry for mercy in the context of scripture is a cry for salvation, a cry for God's redemptive grace to make him well before God. This is what he sees in what he knows about Jesus. What he has taken time to examine, what he's taken time to take in. The man is blind, he's not stupid, he's capable of reasoning through scripture and, and all the things that he's heard about Jesus. And so he cries out. And then those who were in front of him rebuked him, tell him to be silent. But he cries out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. It's an awkward moment. 
You know how you get when you're down the street and you hear someone who may not have all their faculties about them shouting out crazy stuff? You're like, where's the cat team? Where are the police when you need them? Get this person off the streets. This blind man is causing that same kind of social anxiety. He's acting out of his station. He's not acting in accordance with the social norms. He's not staying hidden. So people who were in front of him rebuke him. Literal translation, shut up, fool. Who are you to talk? These people were most probably in front of the blind man as they were between him and Jesus. But as Joel Green points out in his commentary, the description is not merely a spatial one. They saw themselves as in front of him socially. They saw themselves as in front of the blind beggar with respect to privilege, with respect to access to the works of God. Good church-going folk, no doubt. They see the beggar as being outside the parameters of Jesus' ministry and time concerns because of his circumstances, because of his appearance, because, you know, he's blind. God's favor mustn't be on him. It positioned him outside the boundaries of grace. So they seek to dismiss him. But he is persistent. He's like the widow, the persistent widow from earlier in the chapter, in chapter 18. And he continues to act outside of his station, out of the outside of the social norms. Have mercy on me, son of David. He won't be denied. He won't be dissuaded. He is persistent in his pursuit of Jesus, as we all should be. We shouldn't be dissuaded by public opinion and what people have to say to us. Displaying a confidence that he has found his man. That he sees Jesus for who he is. And the cry for mercy from him is just this extraordinary public expression of faith. It's about as far as you could go. It's about as far as you could push faith in Jesus. With all the available information at this point of Jesus' ministry. We don't have the death and the resurrection. We've just got the miracles and what Jesus has been saying about himself. Well, some translations read at this point, they read, and Jesus stood still, just stopped. In all this passing by, in all this movement, in all this traveling to Jerusalem, Jesus hears his true name called out. Someone has rightly identified him as the uh, promised Davidic Messiah who will not merely rule on a throne forever, but will apply the kingdom of God now, the mercy of God now into the lives of people. Jesus hears someone cry out in need. There's a tenor of faith and it just stops him in his tracks. Look, look up, look at me, do whatever. Hear this. Jesus is never too busy for people who need him. He will never walk past someone crying for mercy. What we have here is a picture of the nature of our God who stoops down to people. A God who meets people where they are at. A God who moves towards them, who retrieves them, who, who, who rescues them. Operational grace towards need is God's relational currency. 
That is a picture of God that we are given in Jesus that you must have in your head, in your heart. Isaiah saw clearly when he wrote about this messianic servant, this son of David, that a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. And Jesus stops and he says, yeah, that's who I am, son of David. What do you want from me? Bring that dude to the front of the line. It's an extraordinary acknowledgement by Jesus of his status and his purpose. Jesus as the son of God, the son of David, possesses divine authorization and qualifications to wield divine power that legitimizes his role in salvation, legitimizes his role in bringing the kingdom of God as a present reality. Verse 40 we read, and Jesus just stopped and when he stops, he doesn't chastise this guy for saying something. Man, don't talk about me like that. Are you out of your mind? No, rather, he says, he commands him to be brought to him. Yeah, he, he, he's got it right. And when he comes near, he asks him, hey, clarify what you meant by the son of God, son of David. No. What do you want me to do? What do you want the son of David to do for you? And then this blind man says, Lord, just extraordinary. Let me, let me have my sight. Now Jesus is operating out of his station. He is disregarding social norms and religious norms. Rather than silencing or ignoring the plight of the poor, he engages. Like no religious figure in their right mind does this. They always avoid contact with the unclean, with the unrighteous, those who are perceived to be outside of God's favor. They separate themselves from anything that could separate them from God. It's religious self-preservation. They don't want to be contaminated by the world. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover, for ceremonies, for festivals. What kind of crazy religious person goes and has contact with something that's going to make him unclean so he can't participate in any of that anymore? But Jesus holds no fear of being contaminated by the sin of the world. Rather, he makes things well. He's a sin killer. He's the maker well of all things. Rather than sin affecting him, he affects it. And that has been the clear picture throughout all the Gospels. Like He doesn't just heal lepers, he touches them. And he's not made unclean, they are made clean. Well, the shift from the leper, from son of David to Lord, gives us further insight into how this blind beggar sees Jesus, who he is and his ministry. The distinction of Lord is far more than just a sign of respect. It's a confession of faith that our blind man also sees that Jesus is the one in whom and through whom God's benevolence comes. He is the giver. He is the benevolent one. He is the one who oversees the acts of kindness and restoration towards humanity. He has authority over these things. He is Lord of these things. He has divine authority to impart mercy and healing to people. He is of a higher position and stature relationally than this blind man. 
And whether he realized it or not, when the blind man called Jesus Lord, he was actually expressing his own right relationship with God by agreeing with God on who Jesus is and why he has come. Jesus is God's salvation. And in order to receive it, you have to see Jesus as Lord, the benefactor, the means of salvation. And again, the blind man sees better than all of those who are in front of him. And recognizing that Jesus is the kindness of God in human skin, he asks Jesus to let him have his sight. Like the, just the, I just, I just, the audacity of this moment. Can I? This is how he, this is the intimacy uh, that he has with Jesus. He goes, oh, you, you could give me my sight back. Would you do that for me? I know you can. And it will be an audacious picture as Jesus heals the, the physical ailments of this person. And as always, as Jesus heals what's physical, it points to his authority to, to heal what is spiritual in people. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately... He recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. The restoration of this blind man's sight is a reminder that salvation is for the body as well as it is for the souls. And here is a vivid picture that God is not merely, you know, just saving souls, you know, just some kind of spiritual, I don't know, Shirley MacLaine disembodied experience of some transcendent spiritual soul experience down the road somewhere. Salvation is about the restoration of all of creation, of making all things well and the reversing of the disorder and the uh, the degeneration of our bodies falls within that gospel category. This is Jesus making it public and clear that he has the authority to heal uh, the human um, melody across all lines, to make all things well. That he, had, that he stated at the outset of his gospel, back in chapter 4, the spirit of the Lord is upon him, upon me, because God has appointed you know, him to bring good news to the poor, a message of good news to proclaim liberty to captives, recover sight to the blind, set at liberty those who are in captive and those who are oppressed, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And with this simple act of speech that is immediately effective, Jesus publicly and powerfully displays his credentials as the savior of people from all that harms us, from all that sin has just caused havoc in our lives, spiritually, uh, physically, emotionally. What incredible hope this gives people who suffer from disorder uh, and, and, and the degeneration that sin has caused, has caused in our body, has caused in relationships, has, has caused between us and God, that one day God will save us completely from Every single consequence and symptom of sin in the world, of, of sickness and disability and disease. This is a display of that power and that capacity to fulfill that promise. Sometimes now we pray and we pray and we ask, oh, why can't God? I'm sitting up here this morning, I've chewed through about 15 
um, painkillers. Like I'd love God just to fix my back. But but this is more when Jesus does these things, they're descriptive, not always prescriptive. Even though he can heal, but what we see is that one day we know he is capable of the promise that he makes that you will one day live without pain and dysfunction and disorder. When Jesus describes what he has done for this man, he frames it uh, as being a product of faith. And technically speaking, it was Jesus who healed, but faith is the doorway through which salvation and healing was applied to this man's life. It wasn't blind faith either. It wasn't some subjective feeling, but rather a well-informed, well-thought-through and reasoned trust in propositional content that this Jesus of Nazareth is the son of David, the king of divine mercy, Lord of God's kindness towards sinners. Like he's reasoned it all through and he's come to that point. And the effectiveness of Jesus' capacity uh, in this is seen in the immediacy of this man's sight. He is, here is Jesus literally just effortlessly proclaiming sight to the blind. Without effort, without resistance, light, floods, what was once shrouded in darkness, this man's life and the first thing he sees the first thing that this man's mind and imagination is filled with is the face of Jesus what a lovely image you know what a lovely image of personal relationship that Jesus has with those he brings into salvation and then with this brief brushstroke probably a sermon in itself Luke lets us see that saving faith is not just a means to an end not an event that you just tuck away but it produces its own public relationship and productive lives faith in Jesus changes and transforms everything within a person's life and immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him followed Jesus glorifying God and all the people when they saw it gave praise to God this man who, who, who formerly lived outside of social circles, who was marginalized, who had nothing, who could ask for nothing, outside of family, outside of friends, is now included into the family of God. Do you see that? He's following Jesus down the road. He's with the disciples. He's been brought into a new family of inclusion. This is a living picture of the very much more, you know, the hundredfold that we spoke about, the homes that you can go into, the families that will have you. This is a picture of salvation. We looked at it last week. Salvation and participation in the kingdom of God is deeply relational. It's not individual. It's here. It's us. And we live it out together. And as we do, as people see restored lives, as people see just jacked up people uh, coming in and, and, and coming into relationship with God, what's our response to that? Is it not to praise God? To say, how on earth did that messed up unit become a child of God? 
Wow, that's extraordinary. Like if you knew my backstory, and some of you know a little bit about it, Andy's probably smirking away to himself, he knows more than most, you'd be amazed. I, I was worship leading at Wodonga Bats once. This isn't in the notes. This is just, and an old school teacher, for some random reason, came into Wodonga Bats. And they, had to, they, they were that physically distraught that the kid that they had as a student at school was now up on stage worship, leading worship. They had to leave and ask someone if that was really Mason Taylor. But, but praise God, it was. Yeah, this is what he does. Praise, praise of God. Hearts warm with affection and worship of him. Faith in Jesus. Must always do that, should always do that. And this is what Luke wants us to see. To see us as Jesus is the one who stops who stoops down, who brings mercy and healing and and, and sight and salvation to those who recognize who he is and recognize their need of him. Have you heard that Jesus can save you from your sins? That Jesus restores people and he can actually bring them into this new reality where they know head and heart? what it is to be reconciled to God, what it is to have family, intimate friends, to have relationships that are not ones of indifference and fear and suspicion and doubt and distance, but relationships that are, that are, that are of dependency and love and trust and intimacy that, that fold up and roll up in worship of God. Have you encountered grace? Have you seen Jesus for who he truly is? If you have, give praise, worship. And if you haven't, persist. Let's pray. I mean, God, we thank you again for the pictures that you give to us in your word of who you are, what you're like, of how you move towards us, of how you want to restore us into a relationship with you. And pray that this would just kind of... Just be a, a, a burning imprint into our soul that would push us towards you, would not have us run away from you, and that we would find our salvation in a relationship with you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.